0: Welcome to Better Health in the Borderland, a podcast that focuses on health and well-being throughout the Borderland region. It was late and the sky was dark on a cold March night, thousands of feet above Lordsburg, New Mexico, when two off-duty police officers experienced engine failure in their private airplane. It was a night that ended at University Medical Center of El Paso. One of the officers, Adam Schuof, was the pilot and he had been flying since he was 11 years old. On this night, he was calm. He knew he had to be, as the plane glided silently without power toward the hills near Lordsburg. He trained for this, but he knew impact with the ground was inevitable as the plane rushed to meet the rocky terrain below. The two were rescued hours later by U.S. Border Patrol and transported by helicopter to UMC's sher Level One Trauma Center, the only Level One Trauma Center in the region. He could hear them talking about him. He knew he was in bad shape as he was being transported from the helicopter into the hospital. He had heard the same words spoken by emergency medical teams for medical emergencies in cases he had previously assisted and worked on. He suffered extensive injuries that required immediate care by UMC's trauma surgeons, neurosurgeons, rehabilitation team, and many more. In this edition of Better Health in the Borderland, you'll hear the harrowing details of the crash a discussion with the surgeons about the medical procedures and actions taken, as well as a feature on the pilot's life. We begin with Adam. Oh, I, I was a total mess. I I
1: was, uh, you know, it was about it was about forty degrees up on that mountain Fahrenheit. Um, I had shattered my femur. Um, I, I, where I would initially went into shock and I, I, the whole thing, it seems like I was only up there for 15 minutes.
0: While it may have seemed like 15 minutes to Adam, he was relying on thousands of hours of training in the cockpit.
1: So I've had, I've had my, my private pilot's license for, uh, 12 years, 12 years now. And I started working on it when I was 11 years old. So um, essentially, I've been flying for 18 years, and I'm only 29. So, it's, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I was always fascinated by airplanes. Nobody in my family flew, so nobody really understood. Uh, you know, y- y- you know, becoming a pilot—it's something that you really gotta want to
0: do. Adam grew up just outside of Beale Air Force Base, California. It was there that he was able to meet some of the world's most famous aviators and see some of the world's most famous planes.
1: You know, just where we lived, you know, I got to bump shoulders with Chuck Yeager and um, all these all these aviators that, you know, now that I live in Texas, it was like, I was very fortunate to have been able to talk to, talk about flying with, and it was just, you know, I turned 11 years old and I was bugging my parents about it nonstop and they, were, they said, okay, if you pay for it, you can fly. I cut every single lawn in our neighborhood. I was uh, I, I was an airport bum. I was cleaning the porta potties out of the back of airplanes, okay. and I mean, just anything for that hundred dollars. You know, it, basically the the way that it was is a hundred bucks was an hour with an instructor, and so um, <laughs> I uh, I I did anything and everything I could to make some money and and keep and learn to fly.
0: Years later, on that night, high above Lordsburg, every lawn mowed, every port a potty cleaned was worth every minute he was able to buy. So,
1: I had an engine failure and I was out of, you know, about 12,000 feet. And, you know, the closest airport was Lordsburg. And I realized that I wasn't going to make Lordsburg. I, I was going, I was doing everything trying to get a restart out of it. I was, um, yeah, I, I declared an emergency with air traffic control. Um, I listened to the tapes tapes, and even I'm amazed with how calm I was. Uh, But at the same time, this is something that I've practiced for, for 18 years. What happened is it it was dark. And so I shut off all the lights in the airplane so I could see outside the windows, let my eyes adjust. And I found this spot on the side of a mountain that looked like a good spot to to do a belly landing in the airplane. Um, I knew nothing was gonna be ideal just because mountainous terrain is never ideal and I see this spot off to my right and after looking around I'm going, I'm going for that spot and I was probably about two miles away from it. So I made a 90 degree right turn, went straight for that spot and that's when, that's when a little bit of emotions kicking in. It's like, well, this is finally happening. I, I've been practicing it, so that means I knew at some point it was probably going to happen and the closer that I get to the ground, you know and there's not much depth perception I feel the airplane go into ground effect and then that's where it's I'm gonna keep it you know fly it all the way into the crash fly it as long as possible keep it in the air as long as possible and until that airspeed bleeds off and the airplane can't fly anymore and so I did just that I held the wings as level as possible and I kept it flying as long as possible I shut off all the fuel systems isolate both fuel tanks I didn't want any risk of a fire um, and airplane's slowing down i'm hearing the stall horn going it's getting louder it's getting louder and then I, uh and i left the landing gear up uh because you know landing on dirt um there's a good chance with a tricycle gear airplane when that nose wheel comes down there's a good chance of the airplane flipping upside down so i left the landing gear up um full flaps and i i, I feel the airplane Touch the grass and and settled down onto the grass and I had a, a moment where it was like I don't know how I've just pulled this off on the side of a mountain at night. Yeah, I'm gonna make it. And then uh, you know the airplane starts sliding sideways and then we start hitting we hit a runoff a water runoff like a ditch basically and it rips the tail off and it's a sudden stop it's instant and that's where some broken bones happened. I I initially and I remember when I first went into shock it was I I couldn't get out of the, the I, I couldn't get out of the small seat where I, you know, the, the pilot seat and I was getting claustrophobic and I don't know why I'm not a claustrophobic person, but, uh, that's where I first started going into shock and Dylan got me out of the airplane. And then I remember feeling very cold and rolling over trying to, cause I, I sleep on my stomach and I remember rolling onto my stomach on the wing of the airplane and just trying to go to sleep and forget about it. And Dylan I think he tourniqueted my leg. I think he made a tourniquet. And he set up with our clothes. Like, you know, the the the, the tail of the airplane had been ripped around the left side of the, the fuselage of the airplane. And it made, like, kind of a perfect shelter. And so Dylan kind of dug out a little hole and stuck me in there with all the clothes and covered me up to keep me warm. Because I was cold. I was in shock. I lost blood. And we waited. Apparently it was just under... I guess two to three hours, and the Border Patrol showed up. And I remember when they got there, and then I remember being put onto a backboard. And, you know, granted, I'd lost a lot of blood, and I'm sure I wasn't thinking right, but I remember them carrying me to a helicopter, and I remember seeing three rotor blades up above me. And I remember them putting me in the helicopter head first towards the pilot.
0: But it was a short trip for Adam, by helicopter, from the crash site to UMC's Level 1 Trauma Center.
1: So I I remember, I get to the hospital before, and they they got me here before daybreak. So I remember getting wheeled out, and I I spent three years, I worked on an ambulance for three years, and I remember, you know, where I realized how big of a problem I was in, I remember when I would bring a critical patient to the hospital, you know, all the doctor. you know, the doctors and nurses in the ER, they, they know what's coming. They're briefed on something big's coming in. And I remember when I would hand patient care, when I would transfer patient care from me off to the hospital, there'd be, you know, maybe two doctors and three or four nurses and everybody's working quickly, you know, and they've got, the, you know, these guys all work together. They got their quick flow communication with each other and their hand, everybody's hands are moving. And, I see the doctors and nurses around, and and then moving quickly, and then communicating with each other, um, in that very specific type of communication that happens during patient care, and that's when it was, oh, I'm, I'm in trouble. You know, I I I got messed up pretty bad in this in this plane crash. So, I don't know the exact timeline on what surgeries were done first, but they ended up. Uh, my L2 through L5 vertebrae were uh, pretty much crushed and, and shattered. And so uh, Dr. Gupta did, he, he protected my spinal cord and replaced, put a lot of titanium in there so that way there's no risk of uh, no risk of um, uh, paralyzation. Which, you know, that, that was huge. And then I didn't have any sight in my left eye when I got in here, because uh, my my face my face impacted the panel, the instrument panel of the airplane. Basically, they cut off half to, half of my face. Uh, they cut out my skull, and they went in. Uh, they went in behind my eye and in between my brain, and they uh, they let off pressure from that optic nerve, and um, they added some protection to that optic nerve and then they put it all back together and basically stapled, <laughs> stapled my face back in and it's it's healing amazing. And I mean, it was a major surgery that was like, you know, a few hours and I woke up feeling fine afterwards. Um, but they were able to restore about th- that 30% of my vision and they're still swelling and I, I'm, I'm very thankful I have some kind of vision on my left eye. My leg, they, they replaced they put a titanium rod through my femur and about six titanium screws into my uh my leg to anchor it down and uh a week and a half after having a a shattered femur I'm walking in physical therapy which I, I I I didn't know that that was possible so they these guys had me walking in like eight nine days after crashing an airplane and completely destroying my left leg. And then two weeks later, I'm, I'm heading back to Houston. You know, El Paso is kind of like the hidden gem for trauma. I mean, these guys, are, these guys are doing trauma surgery on a daily basis.
0: But the surgery that was conducted on Adam by UMC was among the most rare, but not beyond the skills of the surgeons. The UMC surgeons that cared for Adam that day were Akshay Gupta and Todd Trier. Dr. Gupta has nearly a decade of experience in neurosurgical care. Dr. Todd Trier has over 25 years' experience in neurosurgical care. Doctors Gupta and Trier are not only known widely throughout our region, they're known throughout our country for their neurosurgical care.
2: He starts waking up from his orthopedic uh, operations and some of that kind of stuff, and that's when Dr. Gupta, uh, with the ophthalmologist, the eye doctors, put together that he had this injury to the to the nerve that you see with.
3: Right, so when I was on call the day after uh, Dr. Trier had initially seen him, I got a call from the eye doctors that was consulted on his care, uh, in his care. And he basically called me and said that he's losing vision in his left eye and has some sort of a compression in the nerve that, sup- that goes to the left eye, mm-hmm. uh, the the, sure. the nerve of the left eye, the optic nerve. And he tried to explore the globe, uh, where and he did not find any obvious cause for the loss of vision. So he called me asking if I could do an operation to open up the canal to relieve the pressure on the nerve. Mm-hmm. This condition is extremely... Uh, rare and it's called traumatic optic uh, neuropathy, or TON. Gotcha. Um, and we do that operation for different reasons in different patients who have tumors that that start from the nerve, mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily for for this very indication. Um, so, I when I saw the patient, he barely had any vision in his his left eye. He could he could figure out some light uh, perception. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, it was very hard for him to to say anything more than that. So, uh, time was clicking. And, and in that sense, if we would need to do an operation, that would have to be done fairly soon. Um, so, Dr. Trier and I uh, collaborated on that intervention for him. We talked to him about doing the operation and the risks involved in doing the operation. So... Uh, I told him that this is not a very common problem that we see. It is um, a rare uh, form of uh, compression that we see from Mm -hmm. trauma. And so this is not a very common operation that is done in, uh, not necessarily here, but in any part of the U.S. But uh, we have the expertise. We have the resources we need to get him through the operation. And uh, that would be a chance to help him recover um, some vision, if not all. And he definitely understood the, the importance of, um, of, of, of uh, what I was talking and, and the risks involved in the operation uh, and the time factor.
2: Um, so that was the conversation we basically had with him. But I want to remind everyone that part of his initial injury was this huge laceration, Oh, okay, this gotcha. cut on his forehead. So
0: that wasn't necessarily the cut that you guys did to get to Correct. that spot. Okay, great. The goal of the operation was to
3: reach to this canal, where the bony canal where the nerve is located, and drill off part of the bone so that the canal has more space for the nerve. Think of a train going through a tunnel, and there's construction at the top, there's construction at the bottom, and the train can't go anymore. So our goal is to try and open up part of the uh, the wall uh, to make sure that the construction, part of the construction goes away so that the train can pass through. And so just for clarification, that that's located behind his eye? That's located exactly behind his eye, and it goes deep in the lower part um, of the, uh, or the upper part of the skull base, which is a fairly complex um, uh, area of, of bony structures um, that have the important artery that supplies uh, the brain around it, near it, the other nerves that control the movement of the eye, the nerve of the eye itself, um, so it has a fairly complex anatomy. So with that in mind, the goal of the operation was to open up that canal and cosmetically um, not leave a scar so that he would or someone else would tell that he had an operation. So we typically, even though the incision appears to be bigger, it's planned behind the hairline. Uh, so when it heals down the line, and he he's grows his hair back, you wouldn't be able to tell he had an operation.
0: Right.
3: So it is a it, the trade off is the
0: length of the incision is slightly bigger. So so what was he left with with eyesight? Did did uh, was he able to see out of his eye again? Is he uh, his vision in his left eye is is better, um,
3: not to the point that he's able to see normal. But he's able to identify much more than light perception now. He can identify shapes better. Um, and if things are held very close to his eye, that, that is significantly better than what he had before.
0: And so, what was the, uh, the synergy between you two doing this procedure for him?
2: Well, I, I loved doing operations with Dr. Gupti. Uh, he's just he's just a really stellar fellow to talk with and bounce ideas off of and so I, I love doing cases with him
0: well the, then for this very unusual procedure that you two did in in the 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 just the discourse that you had as you were carrying it out was there any of that hey maybe we should do this but wait why don't we try that type of discussion
3: we did and so this operation can be done by one of the ways to do it is is through the nose, uh, with an endoscope. One of the ways is doing with the approach that we did, mm-hmm. and I laid it out to our patient, saying, "In our hands, we believe the safer way of going is going is going from the top, from the cranium." Uh, I think having a, a, a two sets of hands, uh, two sets of eyes, um, it helps tremendously to improve patient safety, and we that we do that. I would say fairly common, com, uh, commonly at UMC for some of the complex tumors or complex conditions, because we believe that when someone's is is zoned in when they're operating, and the other person is is kind of having the forest view, is able to give a better input to that person who's operating, and that that keeps us in check, and also helps us push the boundaries.
2: Yeah, you know. Um, I like to think of it as somebody's operating and somebody's thinking.
3: With this unfortunate event that he had, being admitted into a different city in a in a hospital that he's not familiar with brought a lot of anxiety to him and his family. So part of our discussion and, and getting him comfortable was to educate him and his family about what he's going through and what we can do for him. And I did make it clear to him saying you, you don't absolutely if you're not comfortable you don't need to have this done here mm-hmm. but if you give us a chance we believe we can get you through this we have what it takes this is not a common thing but we have what it takes to get, taken, get this taken care of mm-hmm. and bringing this um, openness to the conversation and giving him the confidence to trust us I think was was helped him make the decision, and to get and we're happy. It's a successful outcome. But to the viewers, we would like to emphasize the same thing: is just because we're in El Paso, for the viewers that are not part of El, Fa- El Paso, does not mean we cannot handle the care, the gold standard care that's that's happens in the rest of the country. We would like to believe we are also the gold standard.
0: Adam had another way of phrasing the high level of care at UMC. You know, your whole team of surgeons here, they're all they all have that mentality, they all have that culture,
1: and you know, it means I couldn't have picked a better place to crash an airplane.
0: The surgeries at UMC have all been completed, and Adam is back home with his wife going through rehabilitation. He looks forward to getting back up in the big blue skies. This has been an episode of Better Health in the Borderland, a production of University Medical Center of El Paso. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode and story about issues of health that affect our community, our El Paso, and our borderland.